he'll be all right on this one. Good. It's already here. Um, good morning. I have to confess, as excited as I am to see all of you this morning, there is somebody who's joined our service this morning I just haven't seen in the longest time. <laughs> and I'm so glad. It, it's not really spring until sun comes to church. Uh, and so here he is. Welcome to spring. Um, it also gives me a little bit of a place to hide on stage. You know I'm here, but you don't. You can't see me. <laughs> At least that's, that's what I expect. We're beginning a new, um, a new series this morning. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and for um, the rest of the month and into the next, we're going to be focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul addressing an issue once again, one that's somewhat unknown to us. We don't know the exact problem that was going on in the Corinthian church. We know that it involved the, the doctrine of the resurrection. And not just if Jesus rose from the dead, but more importantly, what that means for us as people. Um, but like most of 1 Corinthians, the issues that he addresses uh, for the church in Corinth become valuable to us because Paul is effectively rooting very deeply our lives in the lives of what God has done. And so we're starting this new series called The Reality of the Resurrection. And if you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to open it to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, if you don't have a Bible in the back of the pew nearby, you'll find one. Um, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. You can use the index in the front to find it. Paul begins here by addressing the heart or the foundation or the center, depending on your metaphor, of Christianity. He begins, if you will, at the beginning. He says, before we can move on and talk about all these issues, I want to remind you of what it's all built upon and what it's all based upon. And so he says in chapter 15, verse 1, go ahead and read along with me. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, we are so capable 
of forgetting. In fact, we're so capable of forgetting, we forget the value of reminders. And so as we look at these things, I know for some, they're going to feel like old hat. They're going to feel like, um, like the basics, like the ABCs, like the elementary principles. And so they are, but they are also the soil from which our entire life grows. And so I, pr- I pray that you would help us to not just reacquaint ourselves with these truths, but to re-root our lives in these realities this morning. I pray that your spirit would teach us as Jesus promised, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What Paul does here is summarize Christian truth. What he calls uh, there in verse 3, the first things, the things of first importance, the primaries, the elementaries. He reminds them of these things because of, as I mentioned earlier, because of an issue that will get a better understanding of in weeks to come. But we wanted to slow down and focus on this this week. And what he says here, he says, by way of reminder. These are not new truths for the uh, uh, Corinthian church. Uh, These are not a new spin on an old truth. In fact, the language that he uses when he says in verse 3, I delivered to you what I also received is the language of tradition. He's not giving anything that starts with Paul or ends with Paul. He's not presenting anything that's new or novel. In fact, most scholars believe that the majority of the text that follows that statement is probably word for word. Much like our catechism that we do on Sunday mornings, that truth was created and repeated and we have received it, and we pass it on to our children, that seems to be what he's presenting here. In other words, Paul says here that doctrine matters. He focuses on it. He builds upon it. He says, I want to remind you of what you already know, and what you've told because it was passed on to you, and what was passed on to you because it was received. Now, when he does this, One of the advantages of this passage is that it gives us a very good understanding of the center of Christianity. When he refers to this as the things of first importance, he draws a bullseye in the target. He orients all of Christian teaching, all of Christian living, Christianity as a whole, around these very truths. And he basically says, we need to get back to basics because you veered off course. And so in looking at this this morning, we find the heart of what we believe as Christians. We find the foundation of what we build a Christian life on. And I want you to notice the way uh, the the verbs in in verse 1 and 2 for how we and how Paul relates to these ideas he's going to present. Look again at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So it's the gospel Paul preached, which you received. It's the gospel that the Corinthians and we have received. It's the gospel in which we stand and by which we are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And so it was preached, received. It's in these truths that we stand. And it's in these truths that we are being saved. In other words, this is what makes a Christian. This is not um, 
tertiary. This isn't on the fringe or on the outside. It isn't new or novel or on the cusp. As I've said over and over again already, this is the foundation. He says here once again uh, that, that, that this is what we have received and then in which we stand. I think that's a pretty obvious image, the metaphor of standing. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of firmness and it's a picture of place, right? Standing as opposed to not being able to stand, being shaken, falling over. And he says, no, this is where the firm foundation is. As the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's what this word stand should draw in your mind. He says, this is what gives you a place. This is where you draw your strength. But he goes on and he says, and by which you are being saved. And I want you to notice the tense there this morning. He doesn't merely say, and by which you were saved. He doesn't even say, and by which you will be saved, although he says both of those things in other places. The emphasis that he wants to draw attention to this morning is that the truths he's about to present are in the present tense action saving us. That this is, in other words, relevant for your daily life. He says the truths that he's about to present about what happened, you know, thousands of years ago on the other side of the earth in a life, uh, in the life of a person named Jesus is directly shaping your life as Christians today. That's what he says when he says that this truth is currently saving you. Now, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but it's worth mentioning here that we as Christians this morning still need to be saved. Right? That's implied by the grammar of this text, that there is an unfinished work uh, aspect of Christianity. That's part of the problem that the church in Corinth may have been having. What scholars like to call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the beliefs in the end things. And so they were acting as if the kingdom was fully and already present here and now, as if heaven on earth was already a reality, as if salvation was full and complete and they had moved into the next and perfected and final and consummated life. And so they were acting like this is, this is all there is. They were acting like they were all they ever needed to be. Because they were righteous in Christ Jesus, they must surely be right in all of their actions and all of their thoughts and all of their attitudes. And who are you to say otherwise? And so he reminds them here, as we often need, the fact that Jesus is still treating us like a work in progress. But I want you to notice as well that even though he says you are currently being saved, present tense, he doesn't point us to some new or deeper or secondary truth. It's not you're saved by the gospel originally and then you're saved in your daily life by these seven special principles. It's not you're saved by the gospel originally and then you dig deep and delve to the real spiritual heart of Christianity as you enter into the inner circle. He says if there's any saving to be happening in your life right now, if there's any growth available to you right now, there's any place where you will be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, it will be found here and only here. That's why earlier in the letter, uh, all the way back in the beginning, Paul said, when I came to you, church in Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said that is not just the ABCs of what I believe, but the A to Z. It's the full totality of everything I have to tell you. 
We have only one toolkit available to us as Christians, only one medicine cabinet. We have only one foundation on which to build the house that Jesus called us to build, and that is Christ himself. He adds here, and some of us wish that he didn't, in verse 2, not only which you are being saved, but if you hold fast to the word I preached you. He gives a caveat. He gives an if. He says, in which you are being saved, if and only if you hold fast, you remain steady. And I think it's very easy for us to confuse the idea there. One of the glories of Christianity when we first encounter it as Christians is the fact that we finally can own up to and embrace the reality that we're not enough. That we can't do it. That we have fallen short of the glory of God that like all other human beings we have sinned. Like all other human beings as it says in Ephesians, we are by nature the children of wrath. But God, Ephesians continues, but God has made us alive in Jesus Christ which is a beautiful and glorious truth. The problem is, once we receive and swallow that incredible life-giving tonic, we forget and we shift into a posture that says, okay, now I have to work to keep it. Now I have to fight to make sure I don't lose it. Now I have to pay God back and, and uh, you know, deserve this undeserved grace. When we read a sentence like that in that mindset, it makes us nervous. It makes us afraid. We go, oh no, I've got to work harder. I've got to hold fast. I've got to stand firm. But I want you to recognize where the holding is, where the firmness is, where the standing is this morning. He doesn't say, if you continue to do or to act or to be or to deserve, he says, if you hold fast to what I preach to you. Right? Effectively, all he's saying here is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So to abandon Jesus is to abandon salvation. He's not here talking about our effort at all. In fact, uh, it's in the book of Jude that he both calls us to, um, to stand firm in these things and then reminds us in his benediction that God is able to make us stand firm. What he's trying to express and address for the church in Corinth this morning is that you cannot leave behind the heart of Christianity and survive. You cannot have a heart laying on the table, removed from the body, and still be alive. He speaks in such strong words this morning because they need a good paddle-to-paddle, clear zap to the chest, a reminder of what's at the center, at what's at the heart. And so he says, here it is. Here is the truth that's so important. Here is the center, the bullseye of the target. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the first thing he says here is he says, these are the things that I've received. These are the things that I've preached. These are the things that you're saved in. These are the things that you stand in. These are the things that you must hold firm to. And what is it? It's, it's an event. Specifically that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. He draws in on this single weekend in human history and says, this is it. This is what you must know. This is what you must receive. This is what you must believe. He starts here, and we'll take 
each part separately. He says, first off, that Christ died. But I want you to notice that he adds here, for our sins. Gordon Fee, who's a commentator, pointed out that whoever moved from the death of the Messiah to the death of the Messiah on our behalf, whoever added that concept of for our sins to this idea right here would be rightly known as the founder of Christianity. You see, when he uses the word Christ, he's not conjuring a new term. He's reaching into his ancient history as a Hebrew, as a Jew, and pulling on an expectation. Pulling on a prophecy and a promise that God had given that he would one day send the Messiah, the Anointed One. You can follow this prophecy, this promise, all the way from Genesis through the book of Malachi. It spreads across the Old Testament. But he points out here what he received, that Christ died for our sins. You see, it's not that Jesus' death is atoning. It's not that Jesus' death brings salvation just because it's death. It's not even because he was the particular person who died. It's not just the fact that Christ died that makes this salvation atoning. It's that he died for our sins. As I mentioned, Fee said, whoever coined this idea coined Christianity, and that was Christ himself. What does he say in Mark 10, 45? He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, there's a problem that requires payment. There's an injustice that needs to be fixed. There's a debt that needs to be paid, and I have come to be that payment. Christ died for our sins. Notice the things that Paul doesn't say here, although all of them are true. He doesn't say merely here that Christ's death operates as an example, something that should be upheld and modeling for our own lives. And as I said, in many other places, Paul does that. He constantly points to the cross and he says, do you want to know what love looks like? Do you want to know what submission looks like? Do you want to know what obedience looks like? Do you want to know what glorifies God? And he points to this self-same event. But those things are built upon and grow out of the soil of the gospel. The gospel itself is not that Christ died in front of us as an example, but that Christ died instead of us as a sacrifice. Christ died for our sins. And he adds here in accordance with the scriptures, and it's worth reminding all of you this morning that when Paul says the scriptures, he's not referring to most of what we know as the New Testament. When he says in accordance with the scriptures, he's not saying, as it says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those books haven't been written yet. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, it's probably somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. Okay, So 20 years after the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, somewhere in that range, the Gospels aren't written for at least another decade, if not two, depending on which Gospel we're talking about. When he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, he's directly tying the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the teachings of Christianity with the Old Testament. He points out here that what happened in Jerusalem... What happened on that weekend that we recognize and celebrate and call Easter? That it was not unexpected, even though it was clearly unexpected. 
right? Isn't that one of the interesting paradigms when you read through the Gospels that Jesus is constantly spoiling the ending and yet nobody believes him, right? He says repeatedly in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, repeatedly in each one of those Gospels, I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, they're going to be put me to death, and three days later I will raise. And then those events actually start to lay out and what do the disciples do? They freak out. They run away. They hide. They go back to their day jobs. They do whatever they can because that comes as a surprise. But Paul here says this wasn't, uh, this wasn't new when Jesus taught it. This comes from the ancient story, from the old history, from the expectation that was built into the Jews. And once again, this is not a new Pauline perspective. This is exactly what Jesus said. In the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus raises, he spends some time with uh, two men on the road to Emmaus and then with his disciples proper in Luke 24. And it says there that he explained to those two men on the road the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He said, let me tell you what the Bible is about. And he walked from Genesis through Malachi, through Second Chronicles. He walked all the way through and he said, this is who I am. This is why I've come. That's why when he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he stands before the synagogue. He grew up attending. The attendant hands him the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to set at liberty the captives, to give sight to the blind. He rolls up the scroll and what does he say? Today those things have been fulfilled in your hearing. He takes a book that predates him by hundreds of years and he says, I am the main character. He says the same thing to his critics in the Gospel of John. He says to the Pharisees who love the Old Testament, who memorize the Old Testament, who have devoted their lives to keeping every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. And he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you will find life, but it is they that testify of me. And when you look at the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, what do you find? When you read the epistles that follow those books, and what do you find? When you read the gospels that retell the story of what happened, what do you find? In each and every case, they say, this is as it was said by the prophet Joel. This is as it was said by the prophet Isaiah. This is as it says in Psalms, according to the scriptures. You see, the foundation that is laid here is not just an event, it's an expected event. It's an interpreted event. One of the things that's so profound about Christianity is that predating its existence is an explanation of its coming. It says here that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Where do we find that chapter and verse? Well, although I will, in just a moment, draw your attention to one of those texts, you first have to recognize that Jesus said the whole thing's about him. And one of the ways that can be the hardest to read the Old Testament and see this is just due to the fact that it's so large. You see, when you start in the book of Genesis and you read right through, what you discover begins with a problem. It's the one that Pastor Matt addressed this morning. That Adam and Eve in the garden disobeyed God and because of that were not only removed from the garden but exposed to the curse 
experienced death, and then what do we find that death spread, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, to all men. And so their son, Cain, kills Abel. And we see as the world goes through these things, but simultaneously to watching uh, you know, earth, planet earth, circle the drain in the early chapters of Genesis, you also are given a promise right at the beginning. God says, I'm going to set this straight. I'm going to fix this. He says, yes, there is death, there is sin, there is now enmity between the woman and the serpent. All of these things exist. And he says, but the seed of the woman, his heel will be bitten by the seed of the serpent. And in that action, the serpent's head will be crushed. It's cryptic. It's vague. But it's a beginning. And over time, that promise is developed and explained. And so just a little bit later, speaking to Abraham, God starts fulfilling that promise. And he says, Abraham, not only will I bless you, not only will you be a blessing, but through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your seed, through your descendants. We follow that line and we follow it up to David. And God says to David, David, one of your descendants will rule and reign on a throne eternally. It's those promises, the one given to David, where we get our phrase, Messiah the anointed one that is to come, the coming king. At the same time, as you watch as these promises are developed, you also watch as a genealogy is followed. And that might be to you in reading the Old Testament the most annoying part, is these constant lists of people you've never heard of without any form of biography, just, and so-and-so sired so-and-so and he died. But what you're really getting in that is the bumping forward of the lineage all the way from Eve, all the way to Jesus. So surprise, surprise, how does Matthew open the story of Jesus? He opens back in the beginning with Abraham. How does Luke open the story of Jesus? After explaining the circumstances of his birth, he says, let me tell you about his lineage, and he follows that same genealogy that moves all the way through. The book of Hebrews says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me help you understand, and he opens to Deuteronomy. He opens to Leviticus. He opens to uh, the sacrificial system in the temple and the priesthood. And he says, all of this is just a prefiguration. All of this is just pointing forward to Jesus. He says, don't go back to these things when you have the reality. Don't settle for the shadow when the son himself is here. But when he says here, Christ died for you, for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, he has to be thinking of the prophecy given by Isaiah. He has to be thinking of Isaiah chapter 53. One of the reasons I can say that with confidence is because his letters are full of allusions and quotations of that chapter. And that's where it says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one gone our own way, but the Lord has taken our iniquities and laid them upon him. We saw him stricken, smitten by God, and of no account, but it was on our behalf that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He died in accordance with the scriptures, as expected, as God said he would. Then it says that he was buried. Then it says that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why does buried exist there? Not only is it part of the story, but it also links these two other events, okay? When we say that Christ died, when Paul says it, he's not spiritualizing. He's not giving us an image or a metaphor. It's not that Christ 
died in some sort of undeathly way. As he'll go on to say uh, later, Christ tasted death for all men. The full taste of it, the full experience of it, the full reality of it. He, he didn't just die, he was buried. Okay. And then he goes on and he says, and he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now part of the reason uh, why he can confidently proclaim here again that this is in accordance with the scriptures is not terribly clear until you get to the other side. Let me be uh, clear here. It's true that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was expected according to the scriptures, but it's also very much a paradigm shift. You see, when Einstein started to explain relativity and his view of the universe, it wasn't something you could have guessed or gotten to from Newtonian physics. You can't just study and understand Newtonian physics and get to relativity. It was a paradigm shift. It shifted the whole center, the focal point, our understanding of the world that we live in. But once you get to relativity and look back, it better explains Newtonian physics. It doesn't make them irrelevant. It doesn't remove them away. It just sets them in the context of the fact that actually everything is in motion all the time. And so an apple falls, but you widen the scale and turn the angle, and now it's not falling down, right? Those are the principles of relativity. In the same way, maybe I'll just quote what the author of the book of Hebrews says. God, this is chapter 1, verse 1, who at various times and in various ways has spoken to mankind, has in these last days spoken through his Son. And in the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, suddenly all of those other things don't become irrelevant, they become understood. And one of the ways we see that in the Old Testament with this, with the resurrection in particular, is that you have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that will clearly die, and then you have the son of David who will rule and reign forever. How do you reconcile these two expectations? Did you know that there was a small camp of Jews that actually believed in two messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering messiah, and Messiah ben David, the ruling messiah. Why? Because they couldn't reconcile these truths. Because death is an end. Death is permanent. Death is final. But even when you read Isaiah 53, strangely, after saying that this guy has been killed for nothing he's done, it goes on to say that he will see his offspring, that he will rejoice with the people. Same when you read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 speaks of somebody who is experiencing the shame and the full pain of capital punishment and at the end is rejoicing. It's there, but it's not easily seen until the event takes place, until you go, oh, that's what this means. But when he says here that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, most likely if he had to give us chapter and verse, he would be talking about Psalm 16. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 are the most quoted passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Over and over and over again. And when Luke says that Jesus explained to them the meaning of the Scriptures and opened their minds to understand the Scriptures concerning themselves, you just turn a few pages later to the book of Acts and you find Peter standing and addressing a crowd and he points to Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, For you will not allow my soul to experience corruption, my body to experience death. And this is how Peter explains it. He says, I'll tell you the truth. David died. His body is with us today, and it is corrupted. 
it is decayed, just like all bodies do. And he says, but he said this prophetically, speaking forward of Christ who was to come. And so he says here that one of the witnesses of the truth of Christianity, the foundation that is built on, is according to the scriptures. Then he goes on and he talks about the resurrection appearances. That Jesus didn't just die and was buried and raised to heaven. That he didn't just ascend out of view or disappear. That he didn't just come to reside in our hearts, but that he was seen. He says, by Cephas, by the twelve, more than 500 brothers at once. Why is it important? Why is this part of the received tradition? It's because eyewitnesses matter. And you cannot read the New Testament without recognizing that they see that eyewitnesses matter. And so Luke says to Theophilus, I have made to you, Theophilus, an orderly account of the things that you have come to believe based upon what? Eyewitness testimony. I've gone and I've sought out and I've interviewed and I record for you what they said. When John opens his letter, 1 John, he says, those things which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have handled with our own hands, these we declare to you. Peter says in one of his letters, for we did not come giving you cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Over and over again, the proclamation is the proclamation of eyewitnesses. And so he says first that he was seen by Cephas, by Peter. And then to the twelve. And some of these accounts that he references here, you can go and read about in the Gospels. Others may be referenced in the Gospels, but they're referenced in a different way, so it's hard for us to tell. And there may be other appearances beyond. In fact, uh, I believe it's the Gospel of Luke that tells us that Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over the course of 40 days. Uh, over the course of 10 days, sorry. Um, all the way to his ascension. But he says here that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. Then uh, to the twelve, his twelve disciples. Now, when he says the twelve here, clearly Judas is dead. Matthias has yet to be appointed. That's Acts chapter 1. But what was one of the requirements to be an apostle, being an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus? So Matthias is present at these things too. Notice verse 6. Then he appeared to more than, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the largest resurrection appearance we're aware of, half of a thousand people. But I want you to notice what he says here. Why does he add, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep? At first glance, that seems like an irrelevant detail. In fact, it's pretty clear that that's not part of the received tradition, is it? It's an aside. It's parenthetical. So why does he add it? Because he's reminding the church in Corinth that 20 years after these events, they can walk into Jerusalem. They can go into these churches and they can find these people who were there, who were present, who saw with their own eyes, who were eyewitnesses. He says, look, if you're going to explain away or spiritualize or understate the reality of the resurrection, are you really going to do it in denial of the people who were present? After the 500, he adds, verse 7, then he appeared to James. This is not James the apostle, but James the brother of Jesus. 
And it's striking, actually, when you read about James in the Gospels, who is relatively against his brother, who is convinced that his brother has lost his mind, who tries to get Jesus out of the limelight and into an institution, to find him being a leader of the church in Jerusalem just 10 years later. Here we find out one of the reasons why, because James saw his brother after being brutally murdered, after laying in a tomb for three days, he saw him alive. And then it adds here, then to all the apostles. Now, since he's already referred to the 12, when he says all the apostles here, he's probably talking broader about this group that the New Testament constantly refers to as the apostles that's not the 12, okay? So, for example, Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Um, the definition of apostle in this sense are the ones who saw, the ones who witnessed, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection who then were filled with the responsibility to proclaim what they had seen and heard. Before he moves on uh, to himself in verse 8, I want, to just, I want to just point something out to you this morning. Although the truth he presents here is for Christians, although it's a reminder, it's clearly of value to non-Christians as well. And the way that he organizes this text this morning is not merely chronological, although it is. But I'd like to read it in a slightly different way. He says, we can believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because of the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And if you don't believe Peter, then what about the twelve? And if you don't believe the 12, then what about the 500, many of whom are still alive today, he says, writing 20 years later. And if you don't believe the 500, how about his brother James? And he says, and if you don't believe because of James, what about the rest of the apostles? Listen, I know it's vogue to talk about comparative religion and to view Christianity through a lens that recognizes its similarities with other religions the uh, provenance of the documents of the New Testament in relationship to the events they speak to in history is closer than anything out there. Okay? The oldest writings we have that talk about Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, doing miraculous things follow his life by 400 years. These documents that we have here are written within a generation. Okay. Now, it's easy to say, but that doesn't mean that it actually happened, but it does make a major question for why it was so believable. Right? Because it's easy to start a legend about 100 years ago. It's harder to start a, a legend about last Thursday. Right? The emphasis of the New Testament is eyewitness testimony. These documents were preserved and maintained, and although we don't have the original letters, we have more copies in the early history of Christianity for the manuscripts of the New Testament than any ancient Greek work. If you're going to throw out the reliability of the New Testament, you have to throw out the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, of which we only have a handful of copies that are hundreds of years after the life of Homer. Okay? But there's more. He continues on and he points to himself. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely aborn, he appeared to also to me. He puts himself in this rank as an eyewitness, but he refers to himself in a word that literally means abortion. and was probably used in the days of Paul in a derogatory sense. 
as, as a monster birth. But I think our, our uh, translators are right when they see it here as being a focus on when Paul became a Christian and not how. When it says here, as one untimely born, he's probably pointing to the fact that it was after all of these things that Christ appeared to Paul. Remember the circumstances of Paul who writes this letter that we're reading here this morning. He was an enemy of Christianity, present at the death of the first martyr of Christianity, a man named Stephen, holding the coats while others were putting him to death. It tells us in the book of Acts that he was on his way to Damascus with paper in hand to arrest Christians. He was a rigid Jewish religious leader. And he saw Christianity as a heretical threat to Judaism and he wanted to wipe it off the map. And so here he is walking with paper in hand on the way to Damascus. It says uh, in Luke's commentary of the event in the book of Acts, still breathing threats of the Christians. In other words, he is fully into this. Okay, this is not just a day job for Paul. He is obsessive in this way. And he encounters Jesus in such a way that he, he goes from being Christianity's greatest enemy to his greatest proponent. And so he recognizes here, and humbly, I, I came out of sequence. I wasn't one of Jesus' believers when he was alive. I wasn't one of Jesus' believers after he rose from the dead. I wasn't Jesus' believer in the early years of the church. Right? I was against him, and then out of the sequence, out of the time, by the grace of God, he appeared to me. And so he says, uh, verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is something that Paul never forgot. Despite all that he did for the church, despite all the churches that he planted, even in the last letter he writes, he references this reality, that he was a persecutor that he was a murderer, that he was a blasphemer, that he stood against Christ and yet Christ saved him. But he adds here in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. What is he saying here? He's already told the Corinthian church, right? Lest you believed in vain. And so by bringing up this phrase again, he's tying these things together. He's not here boasting in spiritually humble language which is what it can look like when you read it the first time, because notice what he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church, but I'm the best of all the apostles. That's how you read it at first. But when you pay a little bit more attention to what's going on here, first, let's deal with a misunderstanding in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is not a justification of who Paul is. It's an explanation. And here's the difference, okay? Popeye said something very close to this. He said, I am what I am, and that's all that I am, right? What is that? That's an excuse. Take me or leave me. This is who I am, right? I can think of at least seven pop songs playing on the radio in the last year that say the exact same thing, right? Uh, in fact, I was just listening to the end of Madonna's confession album, and, and that's what she says, and she does it in entirely religious language. She says, I'm a sinner. Take it or leave it, but better the devil than you know than the one you don't, right? And so it's this justification. And so the chorus says, this is who I am. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying something much more striking. He's saying, that's who I was, the persecutor, the blasphemer, the murderer. But by the grace of God, I'm something completely different. You see, one of the most profound realities of 
the resurrection is the fact that this event gives life to people like Paul, to people like me, to people like you. And by God's grace, we become something completely different. You may look at the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and just say, that's unnatural. That doesn't happen. Exactly. And it's repeated over and over again when we're not subject to nature, when we're not subject to genetics, when we're not subject to our heritage, when we are not just the consequence of our background, and yet through the new birth become something new and fresh and alive and different by the grace of God, we are what we are. That's what Paul is talking about this morning. But do you see the relationship between those two things? Paul's going to go on and say, hey, just to be clear here, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you're still in your sins. There is no forgiveness. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if we're not talking about a historical event, then you can give up on the historicalness of you getting through parenting your children accurately tomorrow. Right? There's a one-to-one relationship between what God has done in Jesus Christ and what he's doing in us today. We are being saved today because of what he did historically in space-time in Jesus then. These cannot be disconnected. They cannot be spiritualized or explained away. This is the foundation. This is the reality of the resurrection. And Paul is able to point to his life. And he says this, but notice, even that is not merely an excuse. It's not, I'm still, or it's not, I'm forgiven, I'm justified, but I am what I am. Notice what he says next. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. What is he saying here? He's saying that this grace was productive. He's saying that it wasn't just a free gift and he just, you know, kept it in mint condition and never opened the box. He didn't keep it behind the glass, breaking emergencies in case of hell or the afterlife, right? He says, I took this, I made it a part of me, and look at what it's accomplished. He says, I worked harder than any of the others. One of the things that I think is one of the most profound witnesses for the reality of Christianity is how the church spread in its early years. You have to come up with an explanation for how over three centuries, a hated and despised people who were being fed to lions, who were misunderstood and confused, became grafted into the empire under Constantine. You have to ask how that happened. You have to ask why people could watch constantly Christians bleeding out in the street and then going, that's what I want to do with my life. You have to come up with a reason for the existence of the church. And I can't say that I have ample, complete, utterly undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But I can say that's the best explanation of, of, that I can come up with. Okay? What if, what if the apostles just made it up? What if all of this eyewitness testimony is false? Recognize and remember that all of these men did not live glorious TV evangelist lives. Right? Paul's going to go on in 2 Corinthians and tell you a little bit what it's like to be an apostle and its beatings and its being run out of town and its poverty and its hunger and each and every one of them was martyred for this belief. Okay? To what advantage to live out this lie? But he adds us here, even when he says he works harder, he doesn't want us to misunderstand. So he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Listen, whatever it is you accomplish in your Christian life, you can't take the credit. 
It's not just that God has began and now you've built something. It's not that he lays a firm foundation and you just build on top of it. No, every piece of brick, every layer of mortar is God-given and by his grace. We were saved and we are being saved, as Paul said it earlier in this text. And so when he recognizes here that even his hard work, all of his effort, is, is something that God has done, that's not just humble boasting. That's not just an explaining away. That's the heart of the matter. That's why I can say to the foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? If God miraculously gave you new birth, do you now mature by just leaning into the old birth? Notice what he says in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. He says, this is it. This is the truth. This is the heart. You remove this, no Christianity, no church, no salvation. Now to some of you, you may live in a bubble and that might seem self-evident. But I was just talking with another pastor on the hill and he had a friend visit a church here in Seattle on Easter. And while he was sitting at brunch, his friend's this kind of person, he leans into all of these people at this church and he says, so how many of you believe in the resurrection? None of them did. Like I said, some of, some of us might be connect, disconnected from that, that that seems crazy. But I just want to point out this morning that that's not a new problem. Here, Paul recognizes the fact that the Corinthian church is not in danger of being different in their worship style, in danger of being different in their presentation, in danger of the ethics of Christianity. They're in danger of removing the heart. Maybe you've seen that picture of a billboard on Facebook that PETA put up on a bunch of animals and it's pets and farm animals and it just says, where is the line between pet and food? And somebody smartly added a line right between the cat and the chicken and says, the line's about right here. Where's the line between Christian and non-Christian? It's right here. Okay, now this can, there's so many other things we divide and fight about this one is not our division. This one is not our fight. This is not one that we have a hill to die on. The hill has already been died on. It's called Calvary. This is the center. Okay. If you're not a Christian this morning and you say, you know, there's things in Christianity I truly struggle with, welcome to the club. That's normal. That's natural. But the only question you need to be asking is not, how does Christianity talk about A, B, or C, but did Jesus truly die? Was he really who he proclaimed to be? Is he really raised from the dead? Because simply put, if Jesus raised from the dead, everything you know is wrong. And if he didn't, don't worry about our view on this or that or the other. As Paul will go on to say in this chapter, if Christ is still dead, if he did not raise, then Christians of all people are to be most pitied. You should pity us. Because this is the foundation, and it's win or lose with this. We're all in. Our chips are all on the table on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For is there, there's no salvation in any other name we proclaim as Christians. For the only way we're getting to heaven is by the grace of God, and so because of that, we've put in, entrusted ourselves entirely to Jesus. But when we do that, we do it recognizing that it's according to the scriptures. We do it recognizing it's just as God had promised and proclaimed. 
We do it in accordance with eyewitness testimony, recognizing that the people who wrote these words were present, that the stories they tell were witnessed, that the sources were researched. Before we close, just one more aside. It's only every couple of years that somebody tries to reinterpret these events, to take Easter and give it a fresh meeting. Just pick up time this month. It's always there. It's always present. I really struggle with the arrogance of a generation thousands of years removed from these events who think we know better than the ones who were there. Now, if you want to say these ones weren't there and that, they, that it's nothing, then why is it worth explaining and interpreting? But if you're going to interpret it, if anyone gets a vote, it's Peter. It's the 12. It's Paul. This is Christianity. This is what we believe. We don't look solely and ultimately to the teachings of Jesus. We don't look solely and ultimately to the example of Jesus. We don't look solely and ultimately uh, you know, to the pithy recreation of Jesus that we present. We look to the death, the burial, and resurrection. We hang our hat on it. We stand on it. We stand firm because in it we are being saved. Let's pray. Father, help us to watch out for the constant threat of moving away from these things. And not, not just the outright denial of them, but the denial of the importance and the centrality of them. That says, if, if my marriage is going to be fixed, it's going to be fixed somewhere else. That says, if, if my motivation is going to be reoriented, it's going to be reoriented somewhere else. Help us to watch out from the trap of looking elsewhere for life. I pray by the power of your spirit this morning that we would stand firm in this truth, that we would be present tense today, this morning, at this moment, be being saved, transformed, renewed, matured, in this truth. I pray that the conduit between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our Tuesday morning would be wide and overflowing with life and reality and truth. And I pray that our lives would be testimony as was Paul's to the fact that change is possible because God is changing us. Thank you. Thank you for this great act, for this great interfering in history, for this great miracle of the resurrection that's been repeated in so many of our lives on a daily basis. And thank you for your grace. Pray these things in your name. Amen. As we respond this morning in worship,